In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. We don't know the contrast organic All right, folks, we're back. Meditations in Molotovs. I'm your host, Vince Emanuele. You are listening to the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. Meditations in Molotovs airs every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Central Time, where I am located here in beautiful Michigan City, Indiana, where it is currently 75 degrees and gorgeous. So happy that summer and spring are finally here. You were just listening to Three Teeth, an industrial metal act from L.A. Just recently toured the country with the progressive metal legends Tool, opening for Tool all over the country. Great band. I suggest checking them out. The number three and then Teeth. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, there's not a guest on the program and that is or that was done intentionally uh, so I could have a little time to talk with folks here today about the 2016 elections so part you know part of the reason why I want to talk about the 2016 elections is because that's what everybody's talking about right now and you know it also hopefully uh, means that I won't have to talk about the elections too much in the future of course, we're going to talk about the elections again in the future. There's really no getting away from it. You know, I was laughing because the you know left writer Paul Street was just recently saying that you know for someone who really hates the electoral extravaganza that is U.S. presidential elections, and I mean, think about how long this lasts. This is crazy. I mean, this is like collectively. It's a little crazy. And I think it has a profoundly negative impact on people's psyche. You know, even their ability to socialize culturally, etc. It's negative. Constantly, I mean, constant just trash information. And that's really what we're dealing with here is, you know, smut, trash. You know, this is not the kind of information or the kind of stuff that should be filling people's heads. You know, and just take a look on social media. Look at how people are interacting with each other. Doesn't matter if it's Facebook or Twitter. There are people who actually know each other who are getting into serious arguments and fights over the election. Now, this is crazy to me. For many different reasons. And you know, one of the reasons why I've always found this to be crazy, particularly for those who, say, identify as Democrats or Republicans, which at this point is absurd. And you should have, you know, I mean, in my thinking, you should have your head examined if you still identify as a Democrat or Republican at this point. 
some would argue if you ever have. I would just say at this point in 2016, if you don't know better, there's something seriously wrong. But, you know, this is um, this is this is really a problem in this country. I mean, we have now spent what is it? It's April. We're I mean, it's almost been a year of election information. It has been. In, in fact, it has been a year of election information. And in the meantime, there's neighbors who won't talk to each other. I've always found this amazing about the American political system. And getting back to what I was saying about Democrats and Republicans. So on the one hand, you have neighbors, family members, friends, even lovers, who say won't speak to each other, who argue with each other, who are willing to get physically violent with one another. Debating whether or not one of the two capitalist parties is better or worse than the other. In the meantime, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, they go to Donald Trump's wedding. Donald Trump plays golf with Democratic politicians. Joe Biden shakes hands and gives a bro hug to John Boehner before this, uh, one of the State of the Union addresses. And YouTube that video. That's one of the best videos. So at this, at the time, so this must have been, I want to say, 2010, 2011. At the time, if I remember correctly, and for those who are just tuning in or wondering, there is no script for the show. So if I start going off on tangents or talking about different issues or getting way off of, uh, what is supposed to be the topic, you know, hopefully folks can follow along with that because there's no script. I don't have anything written out. There are some very main and vague points that I would like to make and issues that I would like to touch on, the main theme today being elections. But this is sort of the way the program will roll, so I hope people enjoy it. But, you know, if you go to YouTube, check out the video of the state before the state of the union address one of the microphones was left on and vice president joe biden walks up to the little uh, chair podium stage area where he is seated next to the the then speaker of the house john boehner and they give each other this big aggressive bro hug and they say Oh, am I, you know, Boehner says, am I the barbarian at the gates? You know, joking and, and referring to the fact that Joe Biden in a, in a recent speech had said that the Democrats and the unions were keeping the barbarians at the gates. You know, Joe Biden, the the working class hero, you know, a hero of Democrats and and some unionists and so forth. This this remember, this is the this is the lunatic who wanted to split Iraq into three different countries. Remember that. Remember the platform that he ran on in 2008 when one of these bozo liberals or bozo Democrats tells you that Joe Biden is a wonderful guy. Oh, yeah. Good old Joe. Good old Joey Biden, that guy you could have a beer with on the side of the road. You know, the guy who wanted to break Iraq into a Kurdish state, a Shia state, and a Sunni state. Yeah. So Joe Biden gives him a hug and they, you know, they start joking and Boehner says, well, how's the golf game been, Joe? And they start talking about their golf game. 
Now, there are people on the block in which I live right now who won't talk to each other because they have different political signs in their yards. Now, how crazy is that? Now, how crazy is it that you can go to a local pub, and I remember this because I worked at a bar for years, for years, and I had a lot of time, the position that I was in there, I had a lot of time to talk with patrons, a lot of time to talk with people. And I would, you know, people would find out, oh, you it's, hear people arguing with each other. You listen to Ed Schultz's program or the other guy, you know, the liberal guy. You listen to Rush Limbaugh. Well, you're a moron. I won't talk to you. You know, in the meantime, these people, they hang out with each other. They're all rich. It doesn't matter. You know, these I'm hearing from liberals now. Oh, well, we'll show our progressive people. We'll show Hillary Clinton. You know, we're going to really show her by not voting for her. Look, I care less and we can get we'll get to that. Believe me, we'll get to that point because I know this is something else that people are debating and that people are going to jump all over each other for whether or not they're going to show up to vote, vote for the Democrat, vote for a third party candidate, write somebody in, whatever. But, you know, the idea that we're going to put these people out of work, you know, like, oh, we showed Marco Rubio, you know, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe we bruised his ego a little bit. You know, maybe the peep, the fact that the people weren't interested in Marco the robot. And I have, I mean, let's, let's be honest. It was pretty funny when Trump referred to him as little Marco, little Marco. I mean, (laughs) I mean, that was hilarious. (laughs) <laughs> honestly these are the moments in the election where we have to there has to be some brevity um but you know i mean do you think that people what, what do you think marco rubio is going to do now marco rubio is going to go back to his mansion he's going to get a job at a multinational corporation or a lobbying firm or a law firm or whatever and he's going to make millions of dollars okay so he wasn't he's not going to be the president which is a good thing okay so he's not going to be in the senate which is a good thing depending on who replaces him. But we didn't, you know, this idea that we're going to show these people a lesson or the idea that, you know, we're going to show, you're going to show what? You're going to show the Democratic Party by not showing up? You think the Democratic Party gives a shit whether or not people show up? Okay, sure, some people won't get elected. You think the party's going to disappear? Are you crazy? What do you think the people who are in charge of the party Say in a place like Chicago or Illinois, people like Lisa Madigan and her dad. You think the Madigan family is going to give a shit if they are uh, if people don't show up? You don't think they're going to have connections to business elites around the world and around the country, and particularly in the Chicago area? Somebody like Rahm Emanuel. Come on. If these people, maybe it hurts their pride that they're not reelected to office. Or maybe it hurts their pride that they're not elected at all. But we don't live in the same world as them. You know, this idea that we're living in the same world as these people is insane. I don't think people, and see, this is part of the issue. Part of the issue here, I mean, I think it's there's two, two problems here. So on the one side, people glorify the 
sort of rich and famous lifestyle. People want it. You know, let's be honest. Some people want it. Maybe a lot of people want it. The other side of it is straight up naivety. People don't know. They do not know how the rich and famous live. They don't know how their political leaders live. They don't know how their business leaders live. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, I've had an opportunity to get a glimpse into that world through friends of friends, mutual friends, um, because I have been a part of film projects in the past, particularly documentary film projects, where people who have a lot of money, uh, maybe decent politics, maybe even good politics, and a lot of money, um, donate to these kinds of projects. And so therefore you have to rub elbows, go out to dinner, you know, have some cocktails, laugh it up. You know, this is what you have to do if you're in that industry, which is, you know, one of the reasons why I could never be in that industry full time, particularly entertainment industry. But that aside, you know, getting a glimpse into how these people live, it's not the same world. You know, and I, in a lot of ways, you know, my politics are informed by class primarily. Of course, other, of course, you know, I know some people refer to it as intersectionality. However, I think sometimes the term intersectionality is problematic. Actually, I don't even like the term problematic, so maybe I shouldn't say that either. I do think there are issues with the term intersectionality because I think sometimes it makes things too vague for folks. And sometimes I think it allows people to sort of obfuscate what the major issue is. So people, you know, I remember when we talk about, say, something like Obama, you know, we'd be criticizing him for his imperialism, we'd be criticizing him for cozying up to hedge fund managers and the capitalist class. And people would say, well, you know, but he's trying to fight against the white supremacy of this nation. Okay, 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 yes, Barack Obama exists within the white supremacy of the United States, not only the history of white supremacy, but the current context of white supremacy, not only culturally and socially, and through various forms of subjective racism, but also through various forms of institutional racism. We get it. However, Barack Obama grew up in a family, black, white, red, green, or otherwise, that had more privileges than anyone in my family has ever had. Traveling around the globe, jet-setting with grandparents who had more connections politically, socially, and culturally than most of the people who will listen to this radio program. Then Barack Obama went to Harvard Law School. When he was in La Harvard Law School, he was cozied up next to Brzezinski and all of the worst of the worst at Columbia, at Harvard, and so on. You know, all of the managerial class, all of the 1% and the capitalist class, this is who he was cozied up to. That's what's important. Okay. In that moment, in that time, that is what we should have been focusing on. But instead, we get this BS from people on the left who want to sound smart or who want to sound like they have a better way of explaining things than what the average person knows. And the average person knew then, and I think the average person knows now, that we're getting screwed by a bunch of people who are in the same class. They go to the same schools. 
their kids go to the same schools. They live in the same neighborhoods. You think it's a coincidence that Barack Obama and his uh, family go and vacation in Martha's Vineyard, which is the same place the Clintons go vacation, which is the same place the Bushes go on vacation, which is the same place the Kennedys go on vacation, which is the same place other families go on vacation like the Rockefellers and so on. Come on, you know. And people want to identify with these people. I mean, this is one of the most scary parts about elections. You want to talk about elections. One of the scariest aspects about elections is this idea that we're going to humanize people. These people who are in power, who make decisions for your life and for my life, for our lives, don't humanize these people. It's ridiculous. And this is, again, you know, this is more liberal ideology than it is conservative ideology. Conservatives, I think, are actually, yeah, I mean, maybe. I don't know if I, can, if I could say that. I was going to say, you know, maybe conservatives are more interested, actually, with the issues than some of these liberal people I know. Some of the New Agers, some of the hipsters and the yuppies and so on. But, you know, a big selling point back in 2004 for Bush during the 2004 election was, you know, do you want... Do you, want, do you want somebody as president that you could sit down and have a beer with? So we humanize these people. He humanized George Bush. I could care less what the guy does. I could care less that he paints pictures. I don't care about his daughters or his family. I have no love or respect for these people. I don't care if he has a dog. You know, it's like telling uh, stories about Stalin or Hitler. And if people think that's an exaggeration, I mean, come on, look at the report that was released, uh, first reported on for a site that I've been writing for extensively and almost exclusively for the last couple of years, Telesur English, where over 1.3 million people have been killed as a result of U.S. actions in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Some estimates put it higher than 1.3 million. Well, that's what these people are responsible for. Let's always keep that in mind. Whenever someone tries to humanize these people, it's a dangerous, dangerous path you're walking down. We should view these people in a sort of ruthlessly objective manner. In fact, stop referring to them as people. Even Bernie Sanders. I could give a shit about Bernie Sanders or his family or his friends. All I care about is what Bernie Sanders believes about certain issues and what he plans on doing and if or when he's elected, what he does while he's in office. That's it. That is it. I don't care in the meantime if his dog dies of cancer. I don't care in the meantime if his daughter gets in a car accident. I don't care in the meantime if he has health issues. I don't care in the meantime if he cheats on his wife. I don't care about any of that. And, oh, well, that says a lot about the person's personal character, and we've been hearing this forever. And all of these people are scumbags. How long have we been hearing about people's personal character? Whose personal character? JFK? The misogynist? The drug addict and the drunk who was running around the White House banging uh, actresses and doing cocaine in the White House uh, in, the Rose, in the Rose Garden? Oh, yeah, that is... 
that's you know someone's real strong good character and they show these stoic speeches of this guy on tv like he's some kind of a special guy like he's some kind of a person that you want to tell your kids to grow grow up and be like jfk and his 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 family the family of bootleggers criminals yeah oh yeah that's something to look up to him and the the jf the kennedy family it's sickening to humanize these people. These people are scumbags. And we could go down the list, too. Are we talking about L- LBJ, who is rumored to have uh, uh, pulled out his uh, his penis and wave it around in bathrooms when he's talking to people? And refer to women in the most crude and rude manner possible? Who are we talking about, Nixon? Or are we talking about the scumbag who replaced him Ford and then pardoned him? We're talking about Jimmy Carter, who opened the door for never-ending war in the Middle East with the Carter Doctrine? Or are we talking about Ronnie Reagan, Uh, another real stand-up guy? We're talking about H.W. Bush or Bill Clinton, another stand-up guy, huh? That's somebody you want your your, uh, sons to grow up to be like is Bill Clinton. Or are we talking about G.W. Bush, who's either so evil or so ignorant that he's, you know, personally responsible for the largest war crime of the 21st century. Or who are we talking about? Barack Obama, the quintessential neoliberal, the quintessential personalized candidate. As John Pilger reminded us in a, I think it was a speech he was giving to at an ISO conference, you know, the best, what would they win? Advertising of the year for Obama's 2008 election. You know, there is no humanizing these folks. Um, as I mentioned before, these people should be viewed, I think, in a ruthlessly objective manner. It's dangerous for us to operate emotionally when we think about these people and when we think about the political system and how the political system works and functions within the United States. Very, very dangerous to be thinking about this with your head clouded uh, with nonsense about personalities and people's histories and are they funny, are they cute, are they this, are they that, all nonsense. So get it out of your heads. So when we're thinking about elections, when I'm thinking about elections, I mean, the first election that I can remember was 2000. Now, I wasn't old enough to vote in 2000. As a matter of fact, I was a sophomore in high school in the year 2000. I simply remember being in class, in a, I think social studies class, and we had to have a conversation about who we support. Well, basically the teacher asked, you know, the class, who'd you support? We lived in a conservative white area at that point in my life, but also an area that was dominated by unions. So I would say it was a lot of like blue dog Democrats, or what do they call them, Reagan Democrats? A lot of those sort of people. Socially conservative, but believed in unions, maybe have some populist leanings. But, you know, generally their views on race, their views on gender, uh, their views on sexuality, uh, and various other social and cultural issues, I don't think were that great. Nonetheless, in 2000, our teacher tried to explain to us what happened. Now, Most of us didn't really care. Again, we're sophomores in high school. There were maybe two or three kids in class who were, you know, part of the speech and debate team who probably did care and probably understood what was going on. The rest of us were like, oh, you know, doing what I think ignorant high school kids do. 
that was the first election I remember. And I knew, you know, the, the word on the street was that it was rigged. That's all. I mean, you know, as a kid, you're maybe turn on Saturday Night Live or MTV or Comedy Central. And that's where you're getting your news <laughs> at 16 years old. Better than any other source, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm laughing at it, but we're, you know, MTV is actually better than CNN in a lot of ways. So that was 2000. Now, 2004, I was in Iraq. Second deployment, and I begged for an absentee ballot. Now, I didn't know about, at that point, I was learning a lot about the U.S. political system. And I was reading a lot of Hunter S. Thompson. And for those of you who know Thompson's work, it's more than clear that Thompson was sort of a diehard Democrat. Yes, he was more radical than the Democrats. But if you really pay attention to what Thompson writes about, specifically by the time it's the early 90s, so I think it's what it was the name of the book, Confessions of a Political Junkie. I mean, he's very clear that he's going to support Clinton because he knows, you know, the way he views politics in the United States is, you know, it's almost like a football match. It's almost like a boxing match. You have two sides. It's a ruthless endeavor. Somebody has to come out. Who are you going to put your money behind? It's a horse race. You're not betting on a horse that doesn't have a chance, and you're not betting on a horse that's staying in the stable. These are the two horses. These are your options. Who are you going for? And that was kind of my mindset back then. I mean, not knowing too much. And this was just prior to really being exposed to, I think, more substantial critiques of the system by people like Cornell West or Howard Zinn or Noam Chomsky, Chalmers Johnson. These were the people I was reading after this period. But in 2004, for a Marine, for someone who is stationed in Iraq on a deployment with the infantry and being surrounded by all of this sort of hyper-masculine, hyper-militarized culture and experience and in a context that's hyper-violent. You know, for me, that was a real, um, you know, radical step for me to take was to openly support John Kerry. You know, and I would put Kerry stickers all over my my gear, you know, I had a CD case that we kept in our sea hut. We'd get back from patrol or we'd get back from doing whatever it was we were doing outside of the wire. We'd come back into the wire. We'd go into our sea huts. And I had a bunch of newspaper clippings. So a sea hut is like, how would I explain it to people who weren't in the military? It's almost like a big shed. So imagine like a, an, uh, an, a big shed or a house without siding and without insulation just made with plywood and two-by-fours with sort of a shanty roof. Bunks lined up on both sides. And so, you know, one sleeping on the bottom, one sleeping on the top, and then, say, three-foot space, and then another another uh, bunk set up. And this is, you know, they're split by walls. That There was no doors, just doorways, but there were three sections. The way we set up our sea hut was by rank. So rank and seniority. So the the... For when you first walked in, it was like all of the younger Marines, people who had just gotten to us. And then I was in the middle area because I was a Lance Corporal and had been in for a few years at that time. And then on the 
all the way in the end in the third section of the sea hut was sort of the higher ranking individuals, corporals, sergeants, platoon sergeant. And on the wall where we had a little space, people would put up hooks where they could hang things. People would decorate. Some people would put up family pictures. Others would post letters and so on. I cut out, there was an article, I think it was in the Washington Post or the New York Times, but I was getting all kinds of information sent to me by family and friends. So this was how I was keeping up on the election. Now, there was one TV in the chow hall, which was located on base. So the base was, just to give people an idea, the base was an old railroad station that we had taken over and then built structures on the existing structures. So at the chow hall, there was a TV where people did watch information. Sometimes the news was on, but primarily sports was on. There was only one TV at that time. This was sort of before things really got built up. You know, not too far after that, uh, there were like multi-million dollar chow halls being built. And, you know, this was sort of the first sign for a lot of people that things were way askew, that things were wrong, that there was all kinds of corruption. I mean, even before that, I shouldn't say it was the first. It was very clear what people had been thinking up until that point was illustrated in a $12.5 million child hall being built and being staffed, not with Iraqis, you know, millions of whom needed jobs. And how much of a slap in the face would that have been? I mean, even saying that, as I say that, I'm thinking to myself, my God, you know, could you imagine the people who came and destroyed your country then having to serve them food? That being said, they didn't employ Iraqis, KBR, you know, subsidiary of Halliburton, Kellogg, Brown, and Root, who had the majority of contracts, at least where I was stationed in Al-Qaim, the majority of contracts and so forth. I don't, I do not remember another private entity that operated at that scale. So building a $12.5 million chow hall, staffing it with Filipino workers, so immigrant labor, truly unbelievable, sickening. Again, this is, this is the depth to which the U.S. empire is willing to go, these corporations are willing to go to get what they want. And so in 2004, for me, being a Marine, being stationed in Iraq, already getting shit from everyone I know in the platoon and, in, and around the uh, unit who knew where I stood on various political issues to openly support John Kerry for me was a radical thing to do. Now, little did I know that there were also people who were all actually uh, refusing to serve at that time. I had no clue. None of that for all the reading I was doing at the time. And this is interesting as well. I was reading a lot about 1960s counterculture I was reading Kurt Vonnegut, I was reading Hunter S. Thompson, all kinds of other folks. And I never came across anything about the Vietnam veterans against the war. I never, and you know, in 2004, this was right around the time, right when I left for my deployment in 2004, which was August of 04, was right around the time that the group Iraq Veterans Against the War was starting. So the timing wasn't good anyway. I mean, the idea that I would have heard about that organization in 2004 was, you know, was slim to none, of course, and I didn't anyway until I got home in 2006. But I had no, you know, there was, so, so for me, there was no option of like 
refusing to serve, anything like this. I had in my head, this is wrong. Prior to that deployment in 2004, I had um, went and saw Michael Moore's film, Fahrenheit 9-11, started to educate myself, started to read, started to think more critically about U.S. foreign policy, started to think more critically about my role within U.S. foreign policy, whether or not I wanted to be a part of an institution like the Marine Corps. And so all of this is coming to a head in, in November 2004. So I vote for Kerry. I go to the chow hall to watch the election results with my bunkmate, the gentleman who slept above me for eight months in Iraq, Nick Epstein. Still remains a great friend, someone who I miss dearly, who I wish I could see more often. But Nick and I went to the chow hall to watch the election results. For us, it was daytime for people back home it was nighttime and i think if people remember correctly it was going on for some time because instead of florida like in 2000 and i think greg palast has basically made a pretty clear cut argument that the election not only in 2000 was stolen but that the election in 2004 was stolen as well we watched as hundreds of marines jumped in the air yelling and screaming when they officially gave the election to George W. Bush. Sealing the deal for many of us in thinking that our country was sort of catapulting to hell. That if four more years of what him and Cheney could do to the economy, what him and Cheney and the, and at all could do abroad was going to be horrific. And indeed it was. So after coming home in 2006, you know, I'm working with a lot of political movements, primarily the anti-war movement. And most of the people I knew weren't involved with electoral politics. So this is 2006 leading into 2007. By 2007, Iraq Veterans Against the War and the, what would you call them? I don't really want to classify bands as kind of a pain in the ass, but um, 1990s political metal group, political rock group, Rage Against the Machine, and Iraq Veterans Against the War held what I think, I don't think there's any other event that took place that year that was bigger than the event that took place in Denver, Colorado, where the Democratic National Convention was taking place in the summer of 2008. So in the summer of 2008, at the Democratic National Convention, Rage Against the Machine, a bunch of other groups, the Flowbots, um, the guitarist from MC5, forgetting his name. I mean, all kinds of folks were out there. It was excellent. It was a great benefit show. In between the different acts, veterans would get on stage and start telling their story or start talking about why it is we're in opposition to not only the Republicans and George Bush at the time, of course, uh, John McCain and Sarah Palin, or the prospect of John McCain and Sarah Palin being president, but also protesting Obama and Biden and the Democrats. Understanding and knowing then that they too were fully committed to maintaining the U.S. empire. I was very proud to be a part of that. And in hindsight, you know, I was, I'm, I'm even more proud to be a part of it because what has happened since then has truly been despicable. You know, in 2008, a lot of movements went home. So I was, I'm very conflicted with elections just from my own experience. In 2008, a lot of people poured a lot of effort and a lot of time into getting Obama elected. Okay, so 
it taken out of context, it was truly uh, an amazing feat. Okay, so there were people who were involved with the Obama election in 2007 and 2008 who had never been, who had previously never been involved with the political campaign. I had friends and family and neighbors and coworkers who were engaged with that campaign who never did a political thing prior to that and never really did a political thing after that. Now, that's I'm not trying to paint a broad brush here or a broad stroke here. That some people, I mean, there's some overlap. I knew people at the time who were like some of the most radical uh, left-wing activists, anti-war activists, anti-militarist activists who organized for Obama in 2008 and subsequently went back to the left and organized all kinds of different radical campaigns, participated or had participated in direct actions, civil disobedience, fighting for all kinds of just and worthy causes, who also worked on the campaign. You know, so there's some overlap, as there is now with Bernie's campaign. But at the time, I was convinced that I, w I wasn't interested in voting. You know, I wasn't going to vote. So there's a big jump from 2000 not knowing what's going on, 2004 being in Iraq and voting for John Kerry and thinking that that's a radical thing to do because I'm surrounded by a lot of reactionary crazies. And then... In, by 2008, basically understanding that the system is rigged and that regardless if it is one of the major parties that's elected, Democrat or Republican, that the minor differences might make a big difference in some people's lives, and we'll get to that. But overall, fundamental things will not change. You know, So the Democratic Party isn't going to truly go after finance capital. They might try and you know, put in some piecemeal regulations and so forth, but they're not going to do much, and everybody knows it. When it comes to the U.S. empire, you know, in 2006, when the Democrats, and this was a big reason why I think a lot of us were just, you know, the Democrats have done more to turn people off of their own party than anybody else, but by 2006, when the Democrats took a uh, majority in the House and a majority in the Senate, I remember sitting down with tons of senators and, and uh, representatives, Democrats, and asking them throughout the year 2006 and throughout the year 2007 if indeed they were willing to cut off funding for the war. Our local congressman here in northwest Indiana, Pete Visklosky, who all the steel mills love, right? I mean, this guy has an easy gig. So this guy was elected, I think, God, 40 years ago or something crazy. And he doesn't do anything special, doesn't propose any decent legislation, doesn't speak out for anything. Nobody knows what his values are. He's never on TV. Nobody, you know, he he pulls this BS on people in the region because people in the region are kind of ignorant at times. You know, he'll he'll pull this BS with people in the region like, oh, I'm just a, a working class guy trying to get my job done and I don't want too much publicity. So I'll just, you know, keep my nose to the grindstone type of thing. And, you know, he runs that kind of small town bullshit on people here and they and they and they believe it. But the reality is the guy has barely done anything, you know. Okay, so he sticks up for the steel mills. Why does he stick up for the steel mills? Because the USW is the last remaining powerful or really, you know, is the, sort of the last remaining prominent union in the area, and it's the most powerful union in the area. So as long as he throws a bone to the USW every now and then, he's guaranteed himself to stay in office just like he has for the last 40 years.
But I sat down with him, sat down with all kinds of U.S. senators and House representatives, Democrats, and even a couple Republicans who absolutely refused to talk about cutting off funding for the war. Now, Andrew Basevich, the I think he teaches at Boston University, he's a great professor, historian, combat veteran himself. His son was killed in Iraq in 2007. He just recently wrote an article that people should check out. So if you just Google Andrew Basevich, you'll find his most recent article. It talks about how U.S. Congress has essentially given all of their duties and all of their rights to the executive branch, that they no longer have a say in U.S. foreign policy. If the White House tells Congress, hey, tells the House, we want you to pass the funding for what we want to do, get it done, the, the House nods like good little lapdogs that they are, and they allow the White House to do what it wants, regardless of whether it's Obama in office or whether it's Bush in office. So if Bush wants to destroy Afghanistan and Iraq, of course the Congress writes him a check to do it. And even the people who say they disagree, they're not willing to put their money where their mouth is or put their votes where their mouth is or put their legislation where their mouth is. They're not going to defund it. They're going to allow the White House to continue to conduct these military operations. So by 2008, I had to be convinced by a good friend of mine who is a civil rights activist who basically said, Vince, just... Please vote. This is the first time in 44 years that the state of Indiana could possibly go blue. Vote, you know. And so, I, and at that point, I didn't, you know, thinking this is a very menial task. It's not a big deal. You go in for five minutes, you cast your vote, and you get out, and you go back to doing the real work of organizing. So I voted for Obama in 08. I even went to Grant Park to watch the big to-do when he won. Made me sick then. I remember telling someone, I was there with um, several people I knew, a couple from IVAW, and then an Iraqi gentleman that we knew from Chicago. And I told him, this, this is scary. And he said, what's scary? I said, well, look at all these flags. Look at all these people. There were people outside selling Obama sandwiches with his face sort of printed on the Ziploc bag were sandwiches were being sold. There are people selling Obama condoms. You know, like a lot of things in this culture, it turned into a spectacle. There was no substance. It was a complete symbolic spectacle. And people were crying and carrying on. And it, it was, to be honest with you, in hindsight, it makes me sick to think about it. At the time, I was making a joke of it. In hindsight, it was sickening. And after eight years of neoliberalism, drone programs, cracking down on whistleblowers and deporting two to three times as many refugees and immigrants as the Bush administration. It's beyond laughter now. People who are still wholeheartedly defending Obama should be ashamed of themselves. But all that being said, I think it was, you know, even even that being said, I think People learned good lessons from this. And so leading into 2016, people were like, oh, Vince, are you going to support Bernie? Or who are you going to support? And right from the get-go, I said, this is an organizing opportunity. Of course. You know, now do it. Now, again, does this have anything to do with Bernie? No. You know, so I fall in between a lot of like, I see all these different people out there. And I read a lot of people's work. I try to pay attention to where everyone's coming from. 
I'll read stuff from Salon.com. I'll read stuff from the Huffington Post. I'll read stuff from The Nation. I'll read stuff from Counterpunch. I'll read stuff from Truthout. I'll read stuff from Common Dreams, from Z Communications, and on down the line, the Progressive, Mother Jones, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Local Rag. I'll read all of this stuff. But I find myself in between a lot of these positions. So I have friends who have been wholeheartedly defending Bernie, you know, unapologetically defending Bernie, and to the point where I think it's a little absurd. You know, this is the problem with getting wrapped up in these personalities. Oh, it's Bernie and making him into this like funny caricature and this guy, this old goofy guy. And it's, yeah, okay, maybe some of it's funny, but, you know, is it going to be funny if Bernie was elected and started launching drone strikes? I mean, what are people going to do then? See, this is the point. The real point isn't to defend Bernie against this, uh, people who are critical of Bernie. I am glad people are critical of Bernie. People should be more critical, not only of Bernie, but of the entire system, of themselves, and so on. We should remain hypercritical. So on the one hand, I'm getting some crap from my friends who really support Bernie, and they're like, Vince, we know that you like him. We know you've been going to events for him, but why won't you just you know, sort of come out and just keep you know, pumping him or, you know, all this hashtag this and hashtag that. I mean, it's just a little goofy to me. I mean, it takes away from the seriousness of what's happening. You know, for me, we have an opportunity. You know, back in June was the first Bernie event that was in my area. Why did I go to it? Well, because in LaPorte, Indiana, the neighboring town, I had never heard of a progressive political organization getting together to do anything. So when there's a house party of 50-something people, in a small subdivision that's primarily white, middle class, upper middle class, and these people are saying that they want democratic socialism, I'm interested. You know, I'm sorry if that offends people. I'm sorry if that's not radical enough for some people. But I'm, you know, I don't approach this from a primarily ideological angle. I promote, I approach this, or elections in general, particularly this election with Bernie, from the perspective of somebody who's interested in organizing. From the perspective of organizers, and I don't even consider myself an organizer because I think that's a title you have to earn. You know, the people I know who are organizers are, they do have their nose to the grindstone, except for unlike Pete Visklosky and the useless Democrats, these progressive and leftist organizers are getting things done. They're in the community. They're on the streets. They're knocking on doors, not just for campaigns, but for direct actions, for issue-based campaigns, for educational opportunities to provide programs to people who are in need. And a lot of those organizers are actually organizing within the Bernie campaign. So there's a lot of overlap. You know, part of what I don't agree with some of the more, uh, you know, critical reflections on Sanders' campaign is this, that all oh, the campaign's taking a lot of time away from other stuff that would be going on. I don't agree. I mean, there are other things that are happening simultaneously as the campaign is taking place. A lot of people are doing both. That's what people have to keep in mind because a lot of these critiques I read, there's an assumption that people pick one or the other. Either people are doing radical organizing or people are working with Bernie. That's not how it works. Okay, that dichotomous or that you know, that dichotomy is false. And that dichotomous thinking I think is ridiculous. You know, there are people who are working on Bernie's campaign who are simultaneously involved with more radical efforts. So then there's the folks who say well, what about the Green Party? The Green Party, folks, in my opinion, this is from my perspective, the Green Party is dead. It has always been dead. 
and there's nowhere to go with the Green Party. It would be better, people would be better off, in my opinion, completely forgetting about the Green Party. Forget that it even exists. I've been an activist and organizing and writing and doing radio work for almost 10 years now. And I have yet living in and close to the third largest city in the United States in Chicago have yet to run in or have yet to be approached by anyone from the Green Party who has a serious plan moving forward. The Green Party, in fact, is actually even worse than the Democratic Party in some ways in terms of organizing. Why do I say that? Because the Green Party really is a personality-based entity. They rely on individuals and personalities, people like Nader, people like Roseanne Barr, or what, whoever else they nominate. And am I saying that somebody like Jill Stein is a bad person? Of course not. Of course not. But if you think that Jill Stein, Jill Stein's shtick, or that the shtick of like this really nice and soft-spoken and like well-mannered progressive woman who, again, is probably a really nice person, but if you think that shit is going to fly in middle America, you people are out of your minds. Why do you think people like Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders are flying with people? Whether people like them or not, here's the reality, folks. Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump represent half of the electorate in this country. Why do you think that is? Because people are pissed off. Because people where I live see absolutely no future and they're correct for thinking so. Because there is no future for them. There's no future for them if the Democrats get elected. There's no future for them if the Republicans get elected. And there's no future for them if the Greens get elected. Okay? We are living in the end times, my friends. We need serious alternatives and we need them now. And I'm not talking about the end times from some you know, religious or spiritual perspective. I'm saying here's what the science tells us. We've got about 50 to 100 years. Some people like Guy McPherson would argue we've got till 2030 to either completely adjust or rethink or tear down the current system and build something new or in 50 or 100 years, this place, planet Earth, will resemble some kind of a mixture between Mad Max and Waterworld. That's what this place is going to look like in 50 to 100 years. For some people, as I mentioned, like Guy McPherson, the time's going to be even sooner than that. 2030, 2035, 2040. I forget what the threshold is or the date that he says, you know, is basically game over for life as usual on this planet. So if we take McPherson's analysis, hey, we've got about 15, we've got about 14 years to figure it out. Other analyses, maybe we have 50 years to figure it out. Maybe we've got 30 years. Maybe we have 100. But we've got less than 100. Let's just say that just so we can avoid that argument. That's what we have to work with. So this idea that we're going to, you know, I hear all these people who think that they're very, you know, like I, I hear these people from, uh, you know, Ivy League schools and all of these writers in the Atlantic and people who are writing these peer-reviewed journals and people who are writing these lengthy books about how we're going to rebuild the Democratic Party and this and that. We don't have time for any of that. 
We are out of time. We are out of time. We need completely new ideas, and we need them yesterday. So, in the meantime, we still have to live in this world. So, would it be better for Bernie Sanders to be in office, or would it be better for one of the others to be in office? I think having somebody like Bernie Sanders in office buys us a little more time. That's what I think. I think it buys us a little more time, and I think the reason why it's easier having somebody like him in office than somebody like Trump is because then people are allowed to focus on more substantial forms of organizing. If somebody like Trump gets in office, if somebody like Cruz gets in office, if somebody like Clinton gets in office, we are constantly going to be reacting to craziness, just like under the Bush years. I didn't see any real interesting alternatives being talked about or formed under the Bush years. There were massive protests. There were massive forms of civil disobedience. People were angry because there was a reactionary, a theocratic reactionary in the White House that the religious right had effectively taken over a branch of government. People were angry. People spoke out. People protested. But I think there was more interesting organizing going on under the Obama regime. I think the Occupy movement was more interesting. I think the labor protests in Wisconsin were more interesting. I think Black Lives Matter was more interesting. I think the people who remained active in the anti-war movement were having more substantial and interesting conversations under Obama than they were under Bush. Does that mean I think Obama's better or this or that? No, I'm not arguing that. I'm simply saying that I think when you don't have a complete right-wing maniac in office, that it opens a space for more critical and interesting conversations. And I think we've seen that under Obama. And I think the same would be true under Sanders. I think having somebody like Sanders in office is to show people, here's the limitations. Obama showed you the limitations of identity politics. Sanders, if elected, would show you the limitations of democratic socialism. Sanders, a potential Sanders administration, in my thinking, could show people the limitations of capitalism. Because even with Sanders' platform and even with people asking for basic reforms and things that almost virtually every other industrialized nation around the world enjoys and many uh, things that people in the United States used to enjoy, you know, Bernie Sanders being just simply a New Deal Democrat. Today seems radical. Back in 1930 was par for the course. But is Sanders going to address capitalism? No, he can't do that. Is Sanders capable of addressing the climate crisis we find ourselves in? No, he's not capable of doing that. Is Sanders capable of addressing the empire? Within, If indeed he were elected, he would have the mechanisms to do so, but he won't do so. So who's going to destroy and replace capitalism? Who's going to even have a substantial conversation about it or a critical conversation about it? You know, Who's going to have a critical conversation about the collapse of the natural environment? The Democrats aren't going to. The Greens, I don't really know what their ideology is. It's somewhat along the lines of Sanders. It's like democratic socialism. You know, we'll have some green jobs. Yeah, we're going to have all kinds of social justice programs, and we're going to, you know, go after racism and sexism and all the sort of talking points for people on the left. But what is their ideology really? What kind of government structure are we talking about under the Green Party? They have no idea. They're incapable of addressing these issues. So it's going to be up to us again 
It's going to be up to people, regular people, not the professional class, not the managerial class, not the 1%, not your professors, not your favorite writers, but you, your family, your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, your neighbors, your coworkers, the people you work out with, the people you have a drink with. Those are the people who had better figure it out. Because, yes, elections can be used as educational opportunities. They can be used as organizing opportunities. Elections can be used to meet people, like-minded folks, face-to-face. But they will not replace the day-to-day politics that people should be engaged in constantly. Constantly creating alternative forms of thinking, culture, getting material out there, creating new spaces to express oneself to express ourselves collectively, taking over public spaces. But all of this has to be tied into a bigger political program and a bigger strategy for victory. These are things that we will talk about in future programs. These are topics that we will continue to address on this program, Meditations and Molotovs, on the Progressive Radio Network. And maybe next week I'll talk a little bit about the left and elections and the state more in depth here i just kind of wanted to give some reflections about the ongoing election but next week i will talk in depth about the left and power and elections in the state apparatus questions that people ask constantly not only on the left but people who you speak with on the street about these issues what are you going to do with the government what is the place of the government what does it look like going forward particularly in this context of ecological devastation. That's all the time we have today, folks. I hope you enjoyed the program. I'm your host, Vince Emanuele. You are listening to the Progressive Radio Network. This is Meditations and Molotovs, which airs every Monday at 2 p.m. on the East Coast, 11 a.m. on the West Coast. So take care, and I'll talk to you next week. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. We don't know the contrast voluntary.